Welcome to the People to People podcast. This is episode nine, People and Pandemic. I'm Chimzi. And I'm Hazel. And all we're trying to do is bring as many people as possible into the conversation. The conversation is about partnerships between Scotland and Malawi. I'm from Malawi. I'm from Scotland. But beyond that, we are not experts at all. Yes, you are joining us on our journey. We have an open door, open hearts and open minds. And we're here for the high spirits and for the hard times. And all of our conversations so far have been recorded during a global pandemic. And today, that is what we are going to look at directly. I spoke to Habiba Osman, who is the Executive Secretary for the Malawi Human Rights Commission. What we meant really was that we wanted government to roll out a social protection program, which would really bail out vulnerable groups, small business vendors, persons with disability and the elderly, from acute poverty and total destitution. And from Kate Webb from Orbis Expeditions. It's basically who can, who's got the deepest pockets to last the longest in the tourism industry. And it's just, yeah, it's just really sad. We're also going to share some more conversation with Dr. Kathy Radcliffe, CEO and Director of International Programs at EMMS International. Once this pandemic passes, will people just go back to their normal lives and forget that actually we're all connected? We're not safe until we're all safe. We're going to hear from David Hope Jones, Chief Executive of the Scotland Malawi Partnership. What what's been amazing is how quickly, actually with, with remarkably little sort of financial resource, tremendous human good can happen. So we're going to start at the beginning and reflect on the emergency response. But who better to ask than Wendida Nkoma, who is a senior palliative care nurse in Blantyre, based at Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital. This conversation happened in June 2021, but we're reflecting on the events of the previous year. And is there enough provisions in the hospitals to cope at the moment? <laughs> no, not really. Because uh, it reached the point when we had like struggles in terms of even the, the use of face mask. It was an issue, especially for the healthy workers. For the people in the community, you know, they use this cloth face mask so they can buy it, they can wash it, it's, it's okay. But for the healthy workers, you know, like from different uh, sources, they, they prefer the N95 face masks, which are very, very expensive. And the, we had to struggle, honestly. Yeah. We got funding from EMOMS, and that funding helped us quite a lot because it focused on COVID-19, as well as True Colors as well from there, UK, helped us with some funding for... COVID-19 equipment. It was very frightening to work without preventive uh, equipment. I was worried, I was frightened. I just wanted as if I should stop working, but then I said, if I stop working, who is going to help those ones who are infected? It wasn't easy. We were working on shifts in order to minimize the exposure. People stop coming to the hospital. Even if they are very sick, they prefer staying at home or going to the private hospital because by then they were not testing the COVID in the private institutions. There was lots of stigma and discrimination, especially for the healthy workers, you know, in the communities. They said, you know, those ones, they have COVID. They will transmit that COVID to us. So it wasn't easy. 
I remember you had to put people, let's say, on the wait list, okay? And you try to prioritize saying this one has got lower oxygen levels. Let me just maybe off this one and put this one. It wasn't easy. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. Yeah. I'm talking about the human resource as well as the material resource. They had to work very long hours in the COVID world. People were tired. There are lots of patients who need a lot of care. Mental health is really affected when, when during this time of COVID-19 because people are very worried, people are feeling, people are, have lost loved ones, as well as the stigma. I can give you an example. I have a neighbor here where I stay in my community. He sells like food items and, and soap and the like. He was infected with COVID, was admitted at the hospital for close to a month. When he comes back, he was tested negative. He came back from the hospital. You know, people will stop going to that shop until he comes again. So it's really very painful. You don't know what to do when you are infected. You said, shouldn't I tell people? Should I tell people? Even when you try to go out and maybe buy some, or you are just going out for personal reasons, and when they just notice that you are a healthy worker, they will say, don't be close to that one. She has COVID, she will infect you. It wasn't easy. Did you experience any stigma as a healthcare worker, Jimsy, during the pandemic? No, I did not. So if you don't know, I work in a hospital. Uh, I think I had a very different experience to Mundida. I think here in Scotland, healthcare workers were given like, not priority pass or a fast pass, but like you could go to shops earlier than anyone to go and do your shopping. And you could, you know, get 10% off in certain shops because if you took your healthcare uh, badge with you. So yeah, no, for me, it was, it was, it was okay. Actually, I work for the private healthcare uh, in the private healthcare sector. But like every Thursday, Thursday was my one of my favorite days because everyone used to clap for the NHS workers, which I thought was really nice. There was a sense of community and being there for other people. We should be clear, we are not wanting to underplay the really difficult experience of many healthcare workers on the front line in Scotland who are also faced with really scary and difficult situations here and across the world. So you might remember Dr. Kathy Ratcliffe from our People in Perspective episode. She is CEO and Director of International Programmes for EMS International. EMMS stands for Edinburgh Medical Missionary Society. If we talk about EMMS or EMS, this is who we're talking about. EMS is an Edinburgh-based Christian charity whose vision is a just world in which all people have access to good quality and dignified healthcare. Mundida mentioned that some targeted financial support came from EMS at the height of the pandemic, so we wanted to ask Cathy a bit more about that. So our project works with a total of 30 health facilities, and there's at least one in every district of Malawi, so it's all over the country, and most of them are rural and hard to reach. Early 2020, when the pandemic was getting going, and of course no one really knew exactly how it was going to take off in Malawi, never mind completely knew how it was going to take off in the UK. But because our project was funded by what was then DFID, now Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, they actually quite quickly asked us, do you need to make any adaptations? So 
I asked our five partners working in palliative care what changes they would need. So that some of it was PPE, laptops for a few office workers so that they didn't have to go into the office because you've got to remember their office is in a hospital. For most of them, it's right in a hospital. And one partner translated a COVID poster that was provided by the African Palliative Care Association, translated that into Jichewa. Mobile phones and airtime to allow nurses mainly to conduct remote consultations with patients so that the patients didn't have to come to the hospital, transport for staff so that they could get to their hospital without having to go on what they felt was sometimes risky public transport, extra food and soap to particularly vulnerable patients, extra drugs to patients so that they would not have to have such frequent contact with the hospital. Quite a bit of education for chiefs and village councils about COVID-19, how you get it, how you avoid it, infection prevention measures to health centres, training for some health centres on how to deal with COVID. It sounds like an amazing emergency response. Were you linked in with the Scotland-Malawi partnership? We're holding these big meetings to try and coordinate a response. Did you link in with that? Yeah, I attended quite a few of those meetings. I think it was really great that they held them. Really useful because, you know, you definitely want to talk to each other and share experiences. There was a group came out of it to try and solve the problem of shortage of oxygen, of oxygen supplies in hospitals. And that was, I liaised with that for a while. That was a, a really important group. Yeah, in the end, I think they did some fundraising for that while we turned to fundraising for actually another project, which I haven't mentioned, which is also a COVID project, which is a teenage pregnancy prevention project that we're running with Mulanji Mission Hospital. The teenage pregnancies resulting from the pandemic was something that Mwandida had also mentioned. In May 2021, the Nyasa Times reported a staggering spike of over 40,000 teenage pregnancies, which, according to Caleb Pemba of Plan International Malawi, is an increase of 26%. I have a girl who was in primary school, but now has gone to secondary school. So that time of COVID, you know, she said, in my class, six girls out of 82 girls got pregnant. So you can imagine six girls got pregnant. It means they have to stop school at a certain point and then have to look after those little children. Then they'll decide whether to go back to school or not. Yeah. Another thing that Mandita talked to us about is the concern that many people, particularly in poorer and rural areas of Malawi, would have difficulty accessing vaccines. When you are in the rural area and in that remotest area, you know you have to walk very long distance to find a healthy facility. And where still that healthy facility doesn't give vaccination. Those who have got something or like they are financially stable, they are able to get the vaccine. And unlike those who are very poor and living in the remotest area. And that's not the only challenge of the vaccination programme, which is on Kathy's mind as well. I mean, I did have a bit of a discussion with Malanji Mission Hospital about the fact that many people in Malawi are not wanting to take their vaccine um, when offered to them. And obviously that's a huge problem. And I think we ought to be doing an awareness campaign on that. Vaccination really is the only way to get through this pandemic. I really, really hope that we can get 
lots of vaccines out to lots of people in as short a time as possible. It's not just the right thing to do for other people, but it is the right thing to do for the world's safety from COVID as a whole. We've just got to put masses of effort into getting vaccines out. That's mm-hmm. going to be number one priority right now. Every country I've been to has got some kind of extremely effective administration of one sort. Very often it's the army. You know, we've used the army here. That there's we have. Usually the military is very well organized in any country that might be what so i think delivery in country doesn't need to be a problem the problem is whether we and the rich countries are going to decide to get those vaccines out there shimzi uh, you spoke with habiba osman tell me about that yeah so i spoke to an incredible woman this afternoon habiba osman who is the executive secretary for the malawi human rights commission habiba is a mental health advocate a human rights defender and a gender equality activist basically the role of malawi human rights commission is to investigate human rights violations promote human rights but as well as advance you know human rights in the broadest sense possible since the pandemic started Malawi Human Rights Commission has really been trying to understand the context of COVID-19 as well as monitoring the triggers of for accountability in Malawi. So what we've been doing is to really like do a lot of research. We've also been, you know, looking at the lessons learned, you know, just observing the trends particularly for vulnerable people. So when I talk about vulnerable people, I mean like, you know, street children, people with disabilities, as well as looking at what is happening in the education sector. As you know, uh, that COVID-19 has really affected, you know, the education sector almost everywhere else. In Malawi, I think it has been hit hard. It's one of the hard hardest areas, actually, um, because we just had, you know, for example, an assessment uh, which was done by the Ministry of Gender and others, which confirmed that at least 14,000 girls entered into child marriage, you know, there were, there were teenage pregnancies recorded in the whole country. So this is not just for one district, but the assessment was done in all 28 districts. Malawi Human Rights Commission came out with its statements, I think a number of statements. We were talking about how do we recover better? We want a holistic response. What we meant really was that we wanted government to roll out a social protection program, which would really bail out vulnerable groups, small business vendors, uh, persons with disability and the elderly from acute poverty and total destitution. So for us, we were really fighting for a holistic response that would not only uh, just look at one sector, but just would look at a whole, the whole you know, country and all sectors uh, responsibly and holistically. Habiba particularly wanted to talk to us about gender equality in the wake of COVID times. So you know that I think we've been struggling as a country, you know, fight for gender equality, just like you know, most of the countries in our region where gender equality is still unattainable, when we were making some gains in terms of, um, you know, coming up with progressive legal frameworks as well as policies. But in practice, implementation has been very bad because also uh, we haven't seen a lot of investments coming in into this sector. Again, of course, Malawi has ratified, you know, critical international legal frameworks and human rights treaties, including the Sustainable Development Goals, And, um, you know, we have a standalone goal on gender equality, goal five. And so with COVID-19, it's like those gains that were made, now we're seeing that we've gone 
you know, five steps backwards and to really gain what, you know, we've lost, it, it will really take some time. I mean, just like maybe other countries, mm. but I think each and every country has also felt uh, its pains because of COVID-19. And another important issue that Habiba wanted to discuss was the impact of the pandemic on the awareness of mental health. You know, Malawi is actually a very peculiar country where there has been stigma around mental health uh, in the sense that it's something that as a country we haven't really dealt with very well. And if there are issues, for example, of mental health, people would rather keep them secret, quietly, and they would not want to talk about it publicly. So I think COVID-19 has actually given us a different dimension in how we view mental health and how this subject has actually come to the fore. For me as a leader, one of the things was to tell my officers, my, my, my colleagues that I would want them to undergo counseling if they are interested in, you know, and then I sort of like went out and found um, someone who could be doing in-house counseling. But again, interestingly, you know, whereas uh, these services were, were going to be offered for free, I noted that people were not interested in, uh, you know, in getting counseling. I think Malawi needs help in this regard. We need, we need a national conversation around mental health. Just I think the way we've dealt with gender-based violence that, you know, let's break the stigma, the cycle of silence. We also need to break the cycle of silence around mental health. And now once again, we come back to talking about the vaccination programme. 2.1% of the population have had at least the first dose and only 0.2% of the population are fully vaccinated. I didn't even know that it's the second one, it's only 0.2. If you want to compare the latest in Scotland, it is that 81% of the population have had one dose of vaccine and 57% have had two doses. The Malawi figures on vaccination are from the Our World in Data website, and because they don't separate Scotland out from the UK, we use BBC News figures for the Scottish numbers. And do you know that as of today, we have run out of stocks? Not today, but we run out of stocks. So if we are putting it at 0.2, it means that's the only, those are the only numbers that have managed to get the second dose, because nothing is happening at the moment. So I know a number of people, as well as family members who've been unable to have the vaccine. There were also issues that led to that. For example, you know, we had to destroy, you know, the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, because people were not coming for vaccination. June, you know, here in Malawi, that's our sort of like cold weather season. <laughs> and uh, we are also experiencing like an, quite a number of people now being found. The local transmission is actually going up. Some family members I know, they, they want to wait to see how you know, those of us who've taken the vaccine will uh, react to it. Not enough has been done to raise awareness, to sensitize people, because then we would not have these uh, low figures of people turning up to be vaccinated. It's not just in Malawi, but I think we're at the beginning, because uh, my parents live in Malawi, and my mom was telling me, she was like, you know, uh, on the streets, people are taking lemon and ginger to, like, try and fight off COVID. There was a time when ginger was really scarce, and even lemons. It's the messaging, it's consistent messaging. So right now, whilst we've run out of stock of the AstraZeneca, I would still think that, you know, it's time to really, you know, scale up the messaging. And uh, I think this is where we would also ask, you know, other, you know, countries, our bilateral partners and stuff to assist various institutions in coming up with messages 
about, you know, the vaccine and actually demonstrating, you know, that the vaccine works and that it's very critical for the population to take the vaccine. My worry is that the stocks have run out, so people won't do anything. But I think it's time to sort of like prepare those that haven't had the vaccine to have the chance to be prepared in their mind, psych, whatever. And also maybe just come up with also, you know, innovative programs, whether on TV, on radio, to really demystify this whole anti-vaccine messages or anti-vaccine rhetoric. And it's time to bring David Hope-Jones in on the discussion. David is the chief executive of the Scotland-Malawi Partnership. For me, I, I think the hardest bit about knowing what to do in, in the COVID era and how to use the bilateral relationship is, is the numbers. And I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that anyone's covering up these numbers in, in Malawi or that there's any willful sense of, of not wanting to, to, to give those numbers. But it's just a, a qualitatively different situation in Malawi as far as understanding the numbers of births and deaths um, because of the capacity of the system. The Malawi healthcare system has five pounds per person to spend on their healthcare each each year. That's the reality of, of what healthcare in Malawi looked like before the pandemic. So the, the ability to be able to, to collate those numbers is, is very, very hard. To put it at its bluntest, every single Malawi and I speak to genuinely now can name a friend or family member who's died of COVID. But I think there's a challenge because those numbers, because they seem low in, in Malawi, it's easy to think, well, this isn't a priority. And, and why should a country like Malawi be prioritized to get the vaccine when the real problem is, is in the UK and in the US? And, and I, I think that's just at a systemic level a bit of slightly turning a blind eye at some level to, to what the realities are behind those numbers, because I don't think they stack up at all. So this episode is likely to go out of date pretty quickly, but at the latest time of recording, on the 18th of June 2021, official figures show there's been 34,781 cases of COVID in Malawi, and tragically, there's been 1,166 deaths. Scotland at that time, has 251,911 cases and tragically 7,690 deaths. The Scotland-Malawi partnership were in a good position to hold some open coordination meetings about the COVID response and they seized the moment. So let's hear about those. And so we, we've spent the last year hosting these these um, these COVID coordination Zoom meetings. We've had 13 of them now and over over 1,500 um, people have, have taken part and these organisations have taken part in these and, and, you know, right up to the Minister of Health and the President and First Minister feeding in to be able to, to share information about who's doing what. And that's worked, worked really well through a crisis because, you know, if nothing else, it's, it's respect for your partner's time. It's, it's saying if the Minister of Health is going to give a, a briefing on the situation on COVID this week, let's, let's, get, let's get two or 300 organisations benefiting from it. Um, so they only have to, to give that briefing once. What, what's been amazing is how quickly, actually with, with remarkably little sort of financial resource, tremendous human good can happen because of I guess, mm -hmm. the, the mindset and the decisions that are, that are taken early on of, of what, what actually would be of most use now and what's the most efficient way of supporting those people in Malawi that are leading, leading the, the, the fight. Um, you know, we've seen the same thing at this side. You look at, you look at probably some of, the, some of the decisions that we, the UK, have, have not really made very good decisions uh, about, you know, and that's where there's been big, you know, huge external contracts and, and lots of money thrown at it and let's do it in the, you know, private sector jumping in and running it at a national level. 
that generally hasn't yielded great results at our side. Yeah. But when things are, you know, are localized and there's that local leadership and it's supporting, empowering and listening, it works here. So it's, you know, it's, I guess, immediately obvious, but certainly directly transferable between Scotland and Malawi as far as what, what works. And as a result, what's what's helpful for, for Scotland to do with its friend mm-hmm. and partners in Malawi rather than to its, its friend and partners. I'm Hazel and I have spent this lockdown chatting with Chimsy. I'm Chimsy and I've spent this lockdown humouring Hazel. And you're listening to it on the People to People podcast. The pandemic episode. Covid has taken so much attention that it's taken it away from other things. So um, again, with Milanji Mission Hospital, they've said the attention has gone from TB. So let's do something on TB. And we've started a project with them, which... Um, it's going to grow incrementally and, and it's it's called Mokwanira, which means thorough. So that's one thing. Water and sanitation, which is essential for COVID, but it's also essential in its own right in a health centre. Let's make sure that COVID doesn't distract attention from these other essential improvements that are needed. Is there anything good to come out of the pandemic? <laughs> anything positive um, that you've learned? I think the fact that um it's more common to communicate by Zoom between Malawi and Scotland, for example. I mean, we could have done it before. We were doing it by Skype, but we we're doing it in a much more limited way. So now it's become much more common that someone having a meeting in Scotland will invite someone from Malawi and the other way around. So that's a good thing. Shouldn't have taken a pandemic, but seemed to take a pandemic. Something that echoed David Hope Jones's experience as well. The ability for, for the digital era to to allow Malawian participation, meaningful Malawian participation in in conversations that, that historically, just for purely practical reasons, that that wasn't possible. That's a huge step forwards. So, does this pandemic change the way that people understand and respond to the global crisis? Do you think it's hard to get society to take climate change seriously? So mm-hmm. once this pandemic passes, will people just go back to their normal lives and forget that actually we're all connected? We're not safe until we're all safe. I think because it's affected everyone, whereas climate change affects places like Malawi more than it does the UK. So it's almost like, oh, it's another person's problem. You know, we're not suffering as much. But with the pandemic, I feel like everyone has been affected. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, you know, no matter your status, everyone has been affected one way or another. People have lost, you know, family, you know, members of family, or people have lost their jobs. And hopefully this will make people a little bit more sympathetic. Empathetic? Which one's the, which one's the right mm-hmm. one? <laughs> um, towards other yeah. people. But then also, I, I, I do understand, you know, like once this is all not over, but where when we get to a stage where we've passed the rough patch, will people just go about in their daily lives of like, oh, oh, well, we went through that. I felt for you at a certain time. Now things are slightly back to normal. I can go to the pub again. So bye. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, really don't know how society as a whole will react after. I do think that the fact that we can communicate so much more easily now through technology over thousands of miles and that many people are involved in that now. So that might make the big difference. Communication improves everything really. Increased communication might keep us more knowledgeable and more sympathetic. 
I don't know. I, I guess I just feel really privileged that I'm able to communicate with people in Malawi and hear what they think and what their experiences are. Perhaps we should always remember that not everyone has that opportunity to hear firsthand what's going on in other countries. And we wanted to include the voice of Kate Webb from Orbis Expeditions. We spoke with Kate for our episode People and Purpose, but we saved this clip for this episode because it just gives a little snapshot of the impact of this pandemic on tourism between Scotland and Malawi. Dom and I, we've spent the last 17 years of our life building a business which we're not able to to do at the moment um, and because we can't furlough ourselves because uh, we're directors there's just nothing there's no kind of financial support for directors so yeah we've, we've had to make redundant 95% of our staff in, in Malawi which is just devastating um, we paid for them all to be made redundant and yeah just trying to keep on our last two staff members and just trying to it's basically who can who's got the deepest pockets to last the longest in the tourism industry. And it's just, yeah, it's just really sad. Um, so yeah, I think the the passion's always there. And I think our product's incredible and there's so much potential for tourism to have such a huge impact on the sort of the economic resilience of communities within Malawi. And it just provides an amazing alternative to waiting and being given things and being part of the aid community it gives you an opportunity to be empowered and to actually have your own business and all of the small operators that we work with in Malawi whether it's your guides at the mountain or someone teaching somebody how to cook or they've got a business and the pride in having a business I think is incredible whether you're selling clothes or whatever it is it's so much more empowering than just waiting for that next round of funding which you're going to apply for in my opinion. So, Chimsy, the next episode is the final one in this series. I can't believe it. Oh, man, me too. And what a journey we've had. We are going to end on a positive note, really imagining the possibilities for the future relationship between Scotland and Malawi. And who better to ask than a very young Scot currently living in Malawi? What what do you want everybody in Scotland who's never been to Malawi to know about Malawi? I would want them to know that it's a good place. I don't want them to think that it's a bad place they shouldn't go if they want to. I want to tell them about the wonderful lakes and stuff. And David Hope Jones gets a word in that one too. I really hope, as I'm sure lots of people do, that the next chapters are are Africa's chapter. I really hope the extreme poverty that we were talking about between Scotland and Malawi and in 2005, it is not something we're talking about in quite the same way in, you know, 2035. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Please follow us and tell a friend about us. We'd love you to leave us a review to help others find us and join the conversation. Our email is peopletopeoplepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. In this episode, you heard from Wendy Dancoma, David Hop-Jones, Kate Webb, Dr. Kathy Radcliffe and Habiba Osman. It was produced and presented by Chimsy Dory and me, Hazel Darwin-Clements. This is going to be our most dated episode, I'm sure. It's going to be great <laughs> <Yeah. dating. laughs> by, by the time it's released, something will have come out. <laughs>